This week's episode comes from a talk that I gave recently in San Francisco at the Consciousness Hacking Meetup Group. And the talk focuses on a new project that I'm working on called Mind Training IO. Not so much on the project itself, but on some of the core challenges that I've been pondering related to how we can develop a 21st century meditation model. So Mind Training IO, if you're interested in learning more about it, can be found at mindtraining.io. And it's really focusing on connecting the breadth of the mindfulness meditation movement, the popular meditation movement, with the depth of rigorous training that in the past you've really only been able to find in contemplative traditions and communities. So please enjoy the talk. And if you're interested in finding out more about this project and what might be happening there, check out mindtraining.io. Thanks so much. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Cool. So with no, no further ado, I'd like to, to introduce um, a, a really close friend of mine, um, Vince Horn, who um, he's actually been, been staying at my cabin for the last few days in Santa Cruz. So we've had a, a really good chance to kind of catch up and, and go deep on a lot of things. And every time we sit down to talk, I'm just continually impressed by um, not just his depth in terms of his intelligence, but his depth in terms of his, his heart. Um, his heart is, is, and his sense of ethics, his sense of purpose is, is really profound. And what's come out of that is a, a number of things. Um, the thing that's most impacted me is a project that he created called Buddhist Geeks. And Buddhist Geeks is uh, much bigger than just a bunch of Buddhists uh, hanging around talking about geeky things. Um, Buddhist Geeks was really one of the most important, if not only, efforts that I know of to bring the ideas around meditation and traditional practice truly into a modern context. And he has a podcast that is now, now has hundreds of episodes. He's interviewed um, some of the most important thinkers um, and teachers, both on the spiritual side across traditions, not just to Buddhism, on the scientific side, from uh, researchers, neuroscientists, to the technology side, people that have started companies and created technologies in this space that are relevant. And when I first started off in this space, Buddhist Geeks was the main resource, and still is, to learn about this stuff. And so um, there are a few people in the world that have thought more about this space um, and talked to more people in this space than Vincent Horn. So we're really lucky to have him. So I'd like to invite my friend Vince up to the stage. Thanks, Mikey. Thank you. Good to be here with you. Um, so I was thinking, um, being a Buddhist geek, among other things, that maybe we could uh, start today actually with a little short meditation session. So. Uh, if you're up for that, I see everyone getting into the start position. <laughs> what position do you need to be in to meditate as a koan for you? 
Okay, so I'll, I'll, we'll just do something short. And um, how many people here have meditated before? Maybe raise your hand. Okay, so most everyone. I, I could tell with the starting position movement. And how many people would you say have like a regular practice where you're practicing most days? Okay, wow, impressive. Some discipline in the room. Good. So um, I just want to invite us all to um, just sit for about 10 minutes or so. And uh, I'm just going to offer some initial instructions since you all already know what you're doing. And that is basically, this is what I do these days. I basically sit, I find a posture where I can feel very comfortable. You know, see if you can get in a place where you're both upright and also relaxed and at ease. And then allow your attention to drop into your body. So for me, when I work all day, looking at screens, thinking a lot, tends to be located in the head, my tension. So if you're like me, it can be helpful to drop. Settling down, maybe into the abdomen, maybe suffusing your whole body with awareness. And let's just rest for a few minutes, allowing our attention to be embodied. Just breathing, being, allowing the wisdom of the body to direct things. See if you can notice the stillness in the room, stillness in your mind, in your body, however much that's present. And then notice the movement, the activity of body, mind, sound, experience tuning into that aspect of experience.
Now see if you can hold both stillness and movement at once in your awareness, making room for both activities. Stillness moving, movement stilling, all happening right now in this awareness. Nothing left out. Okay, so let's switch out of this from stillness to movement. And uh, I'm gonna talk at you for a little while and hopefully some of these words will be interesting and or useful. If they're not, please feel free to let them go. And what I wanted to do is talk a little bit about um, a new project that I'm working on, but not so much the project as much as the ideas and the questions that I'm wrestling with as I work on it, because they're really related to this whole question of consciousness hacking. And um, maybe I'll just say a little bit more about myself. Um, Mikey mentioned Buddhist Geeks. Um, That's a project I started when I was um, in college at a university called Naropa. It's one of the few Buddhist universities um, in America. We called it the Harvard of Buddhist colleges because it's like the only one. Um, And uh, while I was there, I started Buddhist Geeks. Um, It became something that's been ongoing since that time, about eight years now. And also during that time, I was, um, like many of you here, uh, meditating like a fiend. Um, I'd actually dropped out of an engineering program to meditate full time. And my wife said, hey, you really ought to consider this university where you could get your degree and meditate. So thank God that she was in my life. Um, and during that time of really, I guess, my, basically my 20s, I was going on retreats meditating, you know, full-time during that time. I did about a year of retreat practice in my 20s, which is not a lot when you hang around the meditation scene. Some people spend years doing this. But it was enough to get a sense for what this practice was about, what some of these traditions were about, where they were pointing, how profound the, the inner kind of technologies of transforming consciousness are. And so for me... I've been trying to really integrate that understanding into you know, what's happening uh, right now in the world. Um, what's happening with the rise of the internet, with the digital age, um, as everything is changing so rapidly. I mean, the Buddhists talk about change, but I don't think they could have ever imagined the, the kind of change that we're dealing with. You know, it's not just that things are changing. It's like whole things that we used to you know, hold on to as traditions are also changing um, right underneath our feet. Uh, and so where do we stand? You know, how do we work with this change in a way that's sane? Um, so that's one of the questions that I'm kind of asking myself um, and asking through this, this project that I'm going to talk a bit about. And what I'm really wanting to explore is, like, what does it mean to meditate in the digital age? Um, what does the contemplative path look like in the 21st century, and how do we want it to look like? You know, how are we actually shaping it? Um, So my response to this is, right now, a new project um, 
called Mind Training IO. And again, I'm not going to talk about the project so much as much as talk about some of the things that I'm considering or that are influencing my work on it. Um, and these are trends, ideas, um, patterns, I guess you could say, things that I've noticed while doing the Buddhist Geeks Project, while talking to a lot of different folks, getting different perspectives, uh, trying to hold all of them in my mind at once without, you know, uh, killing myself uh, or just blowing up, um, which I'm sure many of you can relate to. And I want to start by sort of framing how I'm thinking about meditation in terms of how I learned it. Um, so lately I've been thinking about the training that I did as the, um, the industrial meditation complex. So if you think of the industrial complex, right, uh, in the 20th century, meditation really took hold here in the United States across the West. And the way it was transmitted was not the old monastic system, right? Um, the monastic system um, is its own thing, which I won't get into. But the way it was transmitted into the West was through uh, a bunch of young folks who went to India. Some of them had, you know, tripped acid, done psilocybin, saw this whole reality that they didn't realize was possible. Not all of them, but many of them did. And then went to India trying to figure out what, what is this thing about? And the way I'm sort of looking at this is that you know, these people brought this back and they shared it in the way that made sense at the time, which is that they copied the industrial model. They said, how are we going to teach and share what we've learned with as many people as possible? Well, let's create retreat centers. Let's create these places where people can come and meditate, where 100 people or more can come and get instructions and practice. Um, this is how I did it. I don't know how many of you have done retreat practice, have gone on retreat. Okay, so you know, it's a, usually pretty big. Not all of them are like that, but many. And what ends up happening is the teachers, in a way, become like the middle managers, right? So they're all kind of managing things, responding to questions. You've got a, a kind of typical top-down management structure, right? The teachers, you know, kind of know what's going on, and they give the instructions, answer questions. And then you've got, you know, us as the practitioners, we're kind of like the workers. We're coming in and, like, doing the hard work, right? really paying attention, noticing things. And what's interesting about this is it creates certain kinds of problems. Um, it has certain kinds of limitations. Um, one of them is that, you know, the curriculum is sort of one size fits all. Um, that's what happens in the industry. You, you, try to, you try to get a process that works and you try to replicate it on a mass scale. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of helpful in terms of scaling something, but it loses the ability to respond dynamically to what's happening. So I want to talk about a few ideas in terms of how it was kind of as I practice it or as I see it in the industrial meditation complex, and then maybe a little bit about how it might look as we're moving forward, which we don't really know. I mean, we're, we're kind of in transition. Things are changing. You know, even these centers that I'm talking about and sort of being somewhat critical of, they're changing too. It's not to say, you know, that they're not. Okay, so one thing I think might be happening, and I sort of sense and see, is that relationships and mentorship, like this kind of interpersonal, real relationship, is coming back. So, you know, one of the benefits of the monastic environment or the monasteries are basically all these people hanging out, you know, living together, this spiritual life, 
And they're, they're really what they're doing is talking all the time. They're like, hey, you know, what's going on for you? What's been happening in your meditation? You know, what happened when you went to the city and, you know, like got rice? Like, did, did you like the rice? Did you not like the rice? Were you really upset when they only gave you papaya and no rice? You know, it's like that kind of thing. They're talking and they're in relationship. They're in community. Um, so there's some real benefit. There's something profound that I found happens when you're in relationship with someone and you're talking about these things together. Right, I'm hanging out with Mikey the last two days. Something happens, you know, when we go on a hike and talk. And I don't know what it is. I don't understand it. Um, I don't know how to replicate it in terms of building, you know, structures. I just know it's like the mystery of relationship, right? So that's one thing that the industrial meditation complex doesn't do so well um, with. You know, basically, for me to have a relationship with many of the teachers that I worked with, I had to just be a like crazy person, right? I was just like going on retreat after retreat after retreat and, you know, they kept seeing me. I kept coming and talking to them and eventually, you know, they realized I wasn't going to go away. Um, but that's not true for most people. Most people go, they talk to a teacher a little bit, you know, they have a, a relationship that's sort of cursory and then the next time they see them, probably they're not even remembered, right? Um, same, same with retreats and, you know, what's called noble silence, so sometimes you go on a retreat and it's all in silence. I don't know if anyone has experienced that, but it's really powerful, except that you don't get to know anybody, okay? You don't get to talk. You don't get to share what's going on. So what I see happening with the 21st century kind of model for this is that relationships, human contact, um, discussing things with each other, like that's actually starting to come back. Um, and it's funny, I'm just noticing the irony of me being up here talking to you about this. Uh, there it is. We'll talk later. So, you know, in terms of technology, I think Skype has actually done a whole lot. Google Hangouts and Skype have done a whole lot to facilitate this. Um, I've worked with all of my meditation students on Skype and have for like five years. Uh, it's really powerful, even if you haven't met someone in person, to be able to see them and talk. Um, I can see that continuing to, d to deepen and develop. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. I've got an Oculus Rift to the DK2 at home, and I can't wait until we have some sort of telepresencing, you know, virtual reality, because I can't wait to sit and talk to people with even more of an immersive experience, you know, to really see all the subtleties and to see the body movement and to see, like, when I say something and the person goes, Ugh, you know, and vice versa. Um, you know, I think these technologies are only going to accelerate the process of wanting to spend more time in this sort of interpersonal engagement with each other. So that's one thing. Um, relationships and mentoring, making a comeback. Okay. Um, the other is really, you know, core to this whole conversation here, consciousness hacking, and that is in the 20th century model, you know, which is also mostly kind of kicked off by um, the boomer generation, right? Um, the hippies, uh, who I love. I've learned so much from that group of people. Um, most of my teachers are hippies. And the only challenge with the hippies is that most of them, at least the ones who went to Asia and came back to teach meditation, they don't like technology that much. They don't, like, they're not that into it. They don't think it's particularly helpful. Um, most of my teachers, again, who I really appreciate and I'm grateful for, um, also just think kind of technology is sort of a hindrance to practice. 
Um, and I never felt that way. Like Mikey, I feel like there's a false dichotomy there that you know, maybe as millennials or you know, people that are growing up now, we have to break because it's not going away. You know, technology is not going away. Um, so one of the things I think we're going to have to deal with in the 21st century is how to integrate that technology into the contemplative path. And in particular, what happens when we start developing technologies that you know, superpower our meditation in certain ways? What happens when we build devices that actually help us reach certain understandings quicker than could be done in the traditional way? Um, how do we then um, integrate that into our practice? Do we avoid it because it's not you know, part of the way that you're supposed to practice? Or do we utilize it? Are we pragmatic about it? We're like, hey, I'll use whatever works. You know, I'm suffering. This is difficult. I want to learn how to like, live a more you know, um, sane life. Uh, and support other people, like, I will do anything I can in order to do that. You know, I think if we're pragmatic about it, many of us will choose to use these things. So then the question, how do we integrate these technologies? Um, the term I've been using lately is tech, the technodelics, you know, the, the things that have these profound consciousness-altering effects. Um, I think that's going to be one of the main questions that we have to answer uh, on, the, on the kind of contemplative side of the street. Um, and we have to have an understanding of what the path looked like before these technologies were introduced to get a sense for how it's different. Um, not everyone has to do that, but some people have to kind of know that. So that's another thing that I think, you know, is going to be changing. And as that changes, you know, the third thing is that the role of the teacher or guide or mentor and the role of a community really changes. Because if, if you think of the teacher as basically serving three functions. One is to teach you know, a technique, to teach you how to, how to train the mind. Um, the other is um, to call you on your shit, right? The te a teacher, when they're doing their job well, they, they sort of, they know you well enough that they can see where you're kind of bullshitting yourself and bullshitting them and, and help you see that and help you grow. Uh, and that's a profound thing to be able to do and it takes a lot of trust, which again is why relationships are so important. Um, and sometimes the teacher's not right. Sometimes they're bullshitting you. Um, and so, you know, that takes a lot of trust to be able to say, actually, I think you're full of shit. Okay? Um, you can't really do that in the top-down hierarchical model. It's not as easy. The structure doesn't support that. So, again, this is where everything is kind of fitting together, connecting. Um, and the third thing that the teacher does is serve as a kind of embodiment of whatever understanding it is that you're trying to, to realize yourself. You know, it's, I, I think of one of my teachers, a Zen teacher named Trudy Goodman. And, you know, when I first met her on a retreat, she was giving a talk, and I couldn't follow anything she said. It was like she thought in circles and in pictures, and it wasn't linear and it wasn't analytical, and I had no idea what she said. And I thought, this person, just like, I, I don't get it. Um, after a few retreats with her, hanging out more with her, I started to sort of understand what she was saying. And I thought, huh, maybe she knows something after all. Um, and then when I went to live in Los Angeles for a year and really hang out with her, that's when I really started to get it. Like, she wasn't just talking about this stuff. She was embodying it. She was expressing it in everything that she did. Um, and that was a profound thing. I remember being in an event um, with her organization, Inside LA. And at the event, um, the speaker who was invited there 
uh, didn't have a mic. And so um, what happened was everyone looked around and said, where's the mic? And so, you know, here's the, like, the teacher of this organization. She heads it up. Um, you know, you expect someone, right, like a volunteer or someone to go get the mic. But immediately she springs up, grabs a mic, brings it up, hands it to the person. And, and to me, like, this is a small thing, but it just shows that there was no, in her mind, I could see, there was no idea of her being the teacher or the important person who doesn't, like, get up and do stuff. Like, she just immediately responded to the moment, was in service, didn't make a big deal about it. I'm making a big deal about it now because it was a big deal because I probably would have just sat there with my hands on my ass, under my ass, going, where's the mic? Someone get it. Um, but, but that's another thing that the teacher does is, you know, is express or embody that understanding. So as we like start integrating these technologies and start questioning the structures, you know, that we're, that we're using to help each other learn and, and train our minds, um, the role of the teacher and the role of the community, I think starts to shift. It starts to shift away from just teaching the technique Okay, because everyone here probably has seen, you know, there's countless meditation apps now that teach technique, books, audiobooks. You know, you can learn technique. We're overloaded, actually, with technical information. So the role isn't so much about learning the technique uh, now that the technique is everywhere. So, so that shifts. The, the role, actually, I think, becomes much more about seeing how we embody what we're doing, seeing, you know... Uh, how we bullshit each other and, and, and supporting each other in that, you know, serving as mirrors for each other, reflecting that back to each other, helping each other wake up. Uh, and, and part of what I think might be happening as well is that, um, that the, the teacher is not the only one who's doing that now. You know, usually it's the teacher or senior students or something in the hierarchy, but now I think that, that function is being distributed through the network. So there's another thing that's happening because we're, because we're moving from this sort of top-down triangle to a network sort of system. We've got to figure out how to distribute those functions throughout the network. Um, and that's really challenging. And I don't know that it's quite been done before, maybe except in small groups. Um, so this is another challenge, another big question mark that I have of how do we do this. So if relationship comes back online, we're focusing on relationship. How do we then shift the, you know, um, the conversation or the function of a teacher and community um, so that it's appropriate, you know, to this time and place? And then along with that, I think there's a question of how do we integrate the insights that we have, you know, through technology, through meditation, through, you know, some people do psychedelics, through... Um, just life experiences. How do we take those things, those profound aha moments, those openings, those shifts of identity, and how do we actually apply them to our lives? I think the community um, and teachers and peers um, starts to really serve an important function of figuring that out um, as opposed to just focusing on the technique or perpetuating certain kinds of forms or rituals. Maybe the forms and rituals need to change. Maybe they need to be changing all the time, like everything else. Uh, and the last thing I'm going to mention is, well, I'll just say that I, in, at Naropa, I was studying religion. I was studying um, Buddhism in particular, but I was studying multiple religious traditions and their contemplative 
cores, right? Like what, what, what made them contemplative? And I found in that training that there's a lot of value in the contemplative dimensions of, of religious traditions. There's, there's certain code that's embedded there that's been tested and refined over thousands of years that's really powerful and it really works. Like when you put it into practice, it works. Um, at the same time, I was, you know, grew up in the same, you know, world that you did, noticing, you know, the effects of religious ideology, of what happens when people hold on to the religious beliefs and they make everyone else wrong for not holding those beliefs. Um, you know, the huge pain and suffering that's caused by attachment to ideas and beliefs and ideologies. And I know that in our current culture, you know, the, the basic feeling is we need to move away from those religions. Um, we need to move away from that way of thinking. Um, and I totally understand that. My question is, as we move toward a more secular society, you know, and secular, one, one meaning of secular is actually non-sacred. That's actually what secular translates as, at least in one translation. Um, one of the problems is, if we move away from religion toward the non-sacred, uh, what happens to our experience of sacredness? You know, is everything not sacred? Um, you know, many contemplative traditions actually end up saying everything is sacred. Um, so how do we deal with the conflict of the, you know, kind of the, the problem that arises when we divorce our lives from a feeling and a, an experience of sacredness, of everything being really deeply important, of values, actually, of, of the inner principles and values that drive us um, in service of, you know, the secular, whatever the secular kind of religion is, okay? Um, so for me, the other thing that we kind of have to do is find a way to integrate those two domains, the religious and the secular, to really find a way to take what, what is really meaningful about um, systems that are developed and designed to help work with big questions like what is the meaning of this? Who am I? You know, what, what is this all about? Who are we? Um, I think there's a lot we have to learn from that, that the secular traditions don't really have. And really, in a way, they divorce themselves from those things. You know, it, it, in a sense, they, wanted, they, they threw away the Buddha with the bathwater. They threw away a lot of things because they, you know, um, they had so many problems associated with them. But now we're in a period where we've differentiated those things so deeply that we're actually starting to feel the alienation from, from some of these deeper things. So how do we bring, bring these things back together in a way that actually works? I think that's another question. It's, I don't have really a lot of answers to it, except that I'm unwilling as I do this project to say that it's Buddhist, and I'm unwilling to say that it's secular. I don't know what it is. It's, it's borrowing from both. Um, and I think in the same way, as we start to practice and we start to learn from all these different sources, um, you know, in the same way, we're learning from both. Um, we operate in the secular environment, and we learn from things that impact us deeply that could be called religious. And in the secular environment, there's a lot of religion that goes unnoticed as such. So, you know, there's a lot of ideology that we have to, I think, be willing to question on that side of the street. So these are some of the questions that I'm thinking about, you know, as I work on this project, mindtraining.io. Um, 
I'm hoping that it becomes something that um, can provide a kind of rigorous training uh, of mind and heart that fits in with how most of us experience the digital age, um, fits in with you know working on computers, uh, being in constant communication with each other, um, you know, not having lives where we're sitting in silence all day long, but actually we can start to realize that there's something in our experience that's uh, okay no matter what's happening. There's something, you know, when, when I pointed to the movement and the stillness, there's something there where even when there's activity, even when there's, um, you know, deeply unsettling feelings like anger or frustration or confusion, um, even when we don't know what to do, and we're stuck on a problem or we're stuck in a relationship, that all of that actually is part of our path. All of that can be integrated, can be worked with um, as part of the path. And, um, and it has to be. Otherwise, um, you know, we've created this situation where we, you know, our only option is to go back in time to a period that doesn't exist anymore, um, where we don't have any distractions. Um, but you know what? We are constantly distracted, and that is, that's it too. That's the path. So how do we do, how do we work with that? How do we deal with that? Um, that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I'm sure many of you also are doing that. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.